Well, take your Bibles and find your way to Romans chapter 7. Romans, the 7th chapter. While you're turning there, I just want to let you a little bit behind the curtain to see what happens when a pastor or a preacher comes up against a text like this. This is no normal text. This is a very difficult text. This is very difficult Greek. This is difficult theology. This is difficult interpretation. This is difficult uh, challenges and applications in the passage before us. And yet, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I used to uh, be friends, I still am friends with a man who was a, who was a trauma surgeon. And he didn't wish anyone any ill, but he said, I live for those moments when the most graphic and problematic emergencies happen because that's what I was trained to do. I love to help people in those moments. Uh, I knew a man who is a uh, mathematician who uh, had his doctor's degree in advanced mathematics. I'm not sure why anyone will actually want to do that. There are calculators for things like that. But, um, and he said, I live for very difficult problems. I died for very difficult problems in math. And you have athletes who want to play on the biggest stage. They want to play the hardest game and the highest opponent. This is one of those passages uh, for every preacher who comes upon it. And we're going to spend a few weeks here. And the reason is it's difficult treading, but it's also worth the enormous, amazing fruit that this will provide for us. Romans chapter 7, be looking at verses 14 through 25. Let me read that for you. Paul writes, for we know that the law, that's the Mosaic law, is spiritual, it's not fleshly. But I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I hate, I do not want to do the very thing I do not want to do, but I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about it over the next few studies in Romans. One of the most enduring illustrations of what should be done 
even when it's not the most desirable thing to be done, is that of telling children to eat their vegetables. This is, a, this is something you've said before, right? Eat your vegetables. I must admit that I, I really like vegetables, uh, except mushroom. Mushroom is a fungus. It's not a vegetable, for the record. It's not in the edible category of God's creation. And if you eat it, there's, our prayer room will be open at the end of the service. We can deal with things. I like vegetables. That wasn't always the case, though, nor has it been the case in the Holland home with our three boys. But here is the reality. Vegetables are actually good for you. It's been proven. Doctors have proved it. I don't know how they did that, but they proved it. They're a part of a healthy diet. They have important nutrients for our body. They are very, very good for you. But here's what I found. Vegetables are the hardest thing for a kid to eat, not when they're by themselves on the table. Vegetables are difficult for a child to want to eat while right in front of him is the dessert plate. There's a chocolate cake. There's something yummy. The five-year-old who knows that he should eat his Brussels sprouts before his cake is a problem. And you have a teachable moment, right? I, uh, I've enjoyed trying to teach our kids to eat vegetables. I think the most successful thing we had is broccoli were, was, was trees and we were dinosaurs and we would eat them. And I've also found this out about vegetables, that with enough butter and bacon, <laughs> everything is good. I remember uh, Luke's first day of kindergarten. This was, he was going to a Christian school at Grace Church where, uh, where we were in California. And uh, I was working on staff there at the time. And the kindergartners went, you know, all the moms were out, you know, exchanging tissues and stuff. They go to school. And, and at, the, um, at lunchtime, I went and got upstairs where all the kids were eating. And I was watching Luke and his friends Having lunch, now think about this. As a kindergartner, for the first time, they have their packed lunch, their sack lunch, and they're eating it for the first time with no adult supervision. And I'm watching them all eat, and they're looking around, and the cupcakes went first. <laughs> and then the little fruit gummies. At the very end, there were some you know, uh, things that looked or resembled sandwiches left over. They wanted to do what was good through the taste buds before they were doing what was good for their body. Well, the passage before us, frankly, is like vegetables. At least that's what we have to do today. There are some very practical parts. We're gonna get there in the coming weeks. But I must admit that I see Romans 8 ahead of us and it is so tempting to say, well, this is good stuff. Let's just go to Romans 8. But this is important stuff. Now, what about today? We're going to eat our veggies. We're going to lay out some important groundwork for the next chapter We have to lay important groundwork before we can even look at the passage before us. It's like putting together toys on Christmas morning. It takes time, and if you go too fast or you do it wrong, then you won't enjoy the toy or the gift at the end of the process. Now, as we noted in our last study, no passage in the New Testament has been more hotly debated in terms of what it means and its interpretation than Romans chapter 7, the last paragraph. It's been submitted to so many divergent interpretations, it's hard to list them all. 
When you boil it all down, the question uh, that must be answered and over which there is passionate debate is this. When Paul uses the personal pronoun I, and he kept saying the I that I want to do, the I that, want, that does what he does, doesn't want to do, who is this I? Who is that I? When Paul uses that pronoun, who's he referring to? Let me give you some options, okay? You can kind of look at that passage. You know, I find the principle. I see divergent law. What I'm doing, I do not understand. I do the very thing I don't want to do. I'm the one doing it. No longer I. See that I? Who is that I? Now, here are some suggestions from some very well-studied scholars. First, some say that he was talking about mankind. That all mankind feels this way. Others say he's putting voice to the Jewish people. And he's articulating, this is what a Jew would think about what he wanted to do in reference to the commands and the restrictions and regulations of the law. Others purport that it represents the pre, there are two versions of this. Paul before he was a Christian and Paul after he's a Christian. Which is different than another group of people who argue, that, that's one group of guys who argue. These other group of people who argue say, well, Paul when he was a Jew and Paul when he was a Christian. So there are two kind of uh, veins of the same argument. Who was Paul talking about? Was he talking about I representing the Jews? I as a Christian? I as an unbeliever? I as a believer, which would have captured the Gentile thought as well. Now, before we land on an interpretation, I want to suggest that so much emphasis is put on these differences that most people miss the main real intention of this paragraph. I've got to admit, after years of thinking about this passage, after weeks now of studying it, I, I, uh, uh, I'm convinced that I have let my own mind drift toward one extreme or the other rather than stay in the clear parameters of what the text teaches. He begins by asking a question in verse 7. Is the law sin? The reason he's forced to answer this question is that he becomes very close to suggesting that the law is sin. Now here's the challenge. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a well-studied member of the Sanhedrin. He knew his stuff. He studied under a great scholar named Gamaliel. He, of all people, understood the Mosaic law its limitations as well as its graces. And yet, just listen. You can follow along if you want to. But just listen to what Paul has said up to chapter 7. This is why he has to answer this question. Is the law sin? Who would even ask that question? Well, he said in chapter 3, verse 20, because the works of the law, because by the works of the law, rather, no flesh will be justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if you're a Jew listening to this, you would think, "Uh uh-oh, he's he's picking on my, my Bible, my revelation? Think about if people had spoken about your Bible like this. Chapter four, verse 15. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there's no violation. Chapter five, verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What? Sin's not imputed to me if there's no law? Chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Wow. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law. You're now under grace. Chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of your body to bear fruit for death. What in the world is Paul, this Jew of Jews, this well-studied scholar saying about the Mosaic law, saying about these, these precious Jews Bible. How in the world could he be saying these things which sound so negative? Which leads him to ask the question in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it bad? He's been trashing, in, in quotation marks, people's wrong understanding of the law for six chapters. Now, he obviously knows he needs to answer the question, so is the Mosaic law, is the Torah, is it wrong? Is it sin? He just said it. It actually arouses temptation. How in the world does all of that work? Well, as a well-studied Jew and member of Sanhedrin, Paul knew the Mosaic law was the very word of the living God. This is what may, leads him to digress in what amounts to a parenthesis. This, this passage beginning really in 7 and going through 25 is a parenthesis. He ends off in verse Six. Look at verse six for a moment. But we've now been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of life, the life of the Spirit, and not the oldness of the letter. And then he picks that back up in chapter eight, verse one. So you can really draw a line from chapter six to chapter eight, verse one. And he talks about life in the Spirit for the whole chapter in, in, uh, in, the, in the eighth chapter. Well, What's going on then between verses 7 and verse 25? He answers the question, is the law a bad guy? Is the law sin? The definitive answer he gives in verse 7, obviously, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. In other words, the law actually didn't make me sin. It made me aware of my sin. We've already studied this. And being aware of my sin made me need, know my need for grace. Then in verses 14 and following, which is the passage before us, he explains his thinking. So, let's eat some vegetables, Okay. Before we get into this passage, we need to answer the question, who is the I? Who is the I? Just look at that, beginning in verse 14. I am of flesh, verse 15. What I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. If I do, you see the eyes there? Who is he talking about? The Jews, the mankind, uh, pre-Christian Paul, post-Christian Paul. What's, what's the answer to that? Well, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that he is more likely than likely talking about himself as a believer. Now, I want to explain to you why that is today. And I know that you're thinking, why are we going through all this? Because if we don't lay this, found, this foundation now, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, we're really going to struggle. So let's dive into that. Let me give you some reasons I think that Romans 7 is describing indwelling sin in believers, not 
describing Paul's pre-Christian experience, okay? Now, we're gonna go fast and we're gonna go deep, and so just hold on, okay? Number one, these are reasons I believe Paul is talking about himself as a believer. If if this is your first time, if you're visiting with us, you must be thinking, what in the world? Let me me just explain to you. The Bible is, is so important to get right. And sometimes you have to, orient your vision around a text before you interpret it right or you'll interpret it wrongly. It's like using a, one of those metric um, uh, sets on a, uh, this just a little bit big for a standard bolt and you strip it out. We have to get it right. First reason I think Paul's describing indwelling sin, he's talking about himself as a believer here, is that Paul, believe, Paul tells believers to reckon themselves dead to sin. Therefore, this passage is in keeping with that theme. Let me say that again. Paul tells believers to reckon themselves, consider themselves dead to sin. Therefore, this passage makes sense with that. It's in keeping with that theme. After 10 verses of describing how believers have been freed from sin in Romans chapter 6, look back at chapter 7. It's the first imperative in the book of Romans. Chapter 6, verse 11. Even so, reckon or consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because of his death for sin, consider yourself to be dead to sin. Now, don't you wish it just ended there and we could all be holy after that verse? Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin rule and reign in your mortal body. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul is saying, yes, we've died to sin. Yes, sin has no power over us. No, this is an odd thought. We don't, a believer does not have to sin. And yet, we're still, there's still a reason that we sin. The passage before us is gonna answer that. Can I give you a head start? It's because we still live in unredeemed humanness. We still have flesh. So Paul's already said, you're dead to sin. You're alive to God in Christ. You don't have to sin. Oh yeah, by the way, don't go on presenting your members of, of your body as instruments of sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. Do you feel that tension? Positionally, we are absolutely secure by the death of Christ. Our standing is sure and firm because of his righteousness. It's all secured by the resurrection, and yet you and I still sin. And even back in chapter six, when he declares us to be righteous, he declares that we've been forgiven because of Christ's death. He still says, in the context of that, as a result of that, don't sin. See the need? Because of what he's done, you now have the power to fight sin. He doesn't say because you've been freed from sin, you're now free from ever sinning. Don't you wish it said that? Don't you wish that was true? He tells us that while there's positional reality described in the first 10 verses of chapter six, there is still this ongoing process of what we've been calling aggressive sanctification. Not sinning is hard. Doing what's right is difficult, but the Christian and the Christian alone has the spirit of God, as we're gonna see in chapter eight, 
the whole, whole chapter, has the spirit of God which encourages, motivates, animates, enables us to righteousness and to say no to sin. Believers have to consider themselves, reckon themselves dead to sin. And that reckoning is described, by the way, back in Romans 4, as exactly what Abraham did. Remember that? He was reckoned righteous, not because of what he'd done, but according to grace. It's used about Abraham. So it seems to me that just as Abraham was considered reckoned righteous by faith, in spite of his sin, have you read the life of Abraham? Several series of uh, cycles of lying about who his wife was. Still, he was righteous because of what God had done. So, the first point here is to understand that it's in keeping. Believer, Paul tells believers to reckon themselves as dead to sin and yet to keep fighting sin. That, that's in keeping with what he's already said in chapter 6. A second reason. Paul's use of the first person pronoun indicates, drumroll, you ready for this? He's talking about himself. That's that Tennessee education. <laughs> that when Paul says I, he probably means I. Here's an obvious question. Why would Paul use the first person pronoun, I, in Romans 7, if he were not describing a reality that he himself experiences? Uh, some would say, but wait, it was a reality he used to experience. We'll get there next time. Then why didn't he use past tense verbs when he used present tense verbs? By the way, you cannot find another place in Paul's letters where he speaks in the first person uses the word I, and is really not describing himself. He never speaks in the voice of someone else. There's no other place in his letters where he does that. So to say that he does that here is a bit of a challenge. I think he's describing himself. Now, once you say he's describing himself, you've done away with the view that he's dealing with mankind or the Jews. Now you have to ask, well, when is he describing himself? This leads us to um, this idea of um, uh, historical present. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. Some people think he was speaking historical present. He was speaking of his past as if it was present. The gospel writers do that all the time. I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. By the way, add that the gravity of, of the other personal statements that Paul makes and it's not hard to think that he's talking about indwelling sin and his uh, fight with indwelling sin here in Romans 7. He has his anguish in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. If, and then a traumatic assessment. I mean, look at the trauma of that wretched man that I am. It seems to me that believers like to say, wretched man that I was who God saved. Sure, we understand that we're saved by grace. But if he were talking in the past tense, he would say, he's still dealing with his sin. That's the issue here. Who will deliver me from this body of death in chapter seven, verse 24? That's not describing, if, that, if that's not describing Paul's own experience, doesn't he seem to be going a little bit over the top? Wouldn't it make more sense for Paul to talk about the inability of unbelievers in a more separated way. If he were talking about unbelievers there, he could be very clear. He was in chapter one. He was in chapter two. He definitely was in chapter three. 
You think if he was speaking about unbelievers, he could talk about them and they, not I and me? By the way, listen to how he talks about the unbeliever's mind in other places. He doesn't put himself in that position. He says this, Romans 8, 7, because the mind is set on the, that's set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. All to say this, if Paul says I, we have to really strain to make him say that he's talking about someone else. Granted. Now, if he's saying, I am and I struggle and it's the present tense, what makes us think he's reverting back to a, before he was saved, to to use those verbs? We're going to get into the nuance of those Greek verbs in our next study and, and show those more specifically. Can I give you a third reason that I think he's talking about indwelling sin here? Verse 25 doesn't make sense if Paul is an unbeliever. Look at verse 25. If he's talking about his unbelieving experience, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. How can he be serving God and flesh? How can there be a struggle between obeying God and serving his flesh as an unbeliever? Unbelievers don't struggle with the obedience of God because they can't obey God. They can do nice things, they can do benevolent things, they can do good things, but they cannot honor and obey the one who died for their sins. If Paul is not describing his own experience as a Christian in Romans 7, he sure makes things confusing. If Paul was talking about himself as an unbeliever, he could have made that a lot clearer, and he did not. Romans 6 is right before Romans 7. Romans 6 talks about the struggle with presenting ourselves to righteousness and not presenting ourselves to unrighteousness. Romans 7 makes sense to talk about that struggle. And then Romans 8 is going to give us instruction on how to live above that struggle, win that struggle, and live according to and in and by the power of the Spirit of God. Number four, this is, this is a real issue. We'll talk about this more when we get down to verse 22. Unbelievers do not joyfully concur with the law of God. Unbelievers do not joyfully concur with the law of God. That's what verse 22 says. It's not possible for an unbeliever. If Romans 7, 14 to 25, if in this passage Paul spoke of himself or anyone else who was not saved, then how could he teach that an unbeliever joyfully concurs with the law of God when he just told us for five chapters that the unbeliever, even the Jew, hates the law of God when he can't obey it? In fact, it arouses his curiosity for sin. They hate the standard because they can't meet it. And then we'll come back to this one. Let me, let me just give you a real brief one, number, is this five? Paul writes in the present tense. I've already hinted at it. He writes in the present tense. 
Um, the gospel writers often use a historical present tense. They, if, if you're reading the, many of the miracles in Jesus' life in, in Greek, it will say, and Jesus heals the man, just as we would in a documentary or in a, in a historical present. That's a different case than is going on here where a person is using the personal pronoun and saying, I am, I do, I did. He uses the present tense, not a historical past present. There's no clear establishment of a past tense situation here. There's no mixture of past and present tense as one would expect in a present, a historical present presentation. And then number six, let me just do this briefly, okay? Number six, Paul's response to his pre-conversion mindset is seen differently than this passage represents. Specifically, it's say like this. Paul's response to his pre-conversion mindset is clearly seen in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 7. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. You just heard what Paul said about his struggle with sin, how he, he hates the thing that he does that's wrong. He, he misses the thing that is right that he wants to do. You hear his pain, you hear his struggle, you hear his anguish, you hear his desire to want to please God, to do what's right. If that were describing Paul before he was a Christian, how does that square with when Paul actually on purpose tells us his life before he was a Christian? See if Romans 7 sounds like Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. By the way, he's going to say who I was a part of. For we are the true circumcision. You know, just a little footnote. Philippians 3.3 is my favorite definition of a Christian. If you highlight, star, underline things in your Bible, I don't know of a better definition of a Christian. Look at this. We're not that we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Isn't that a great description? Although, now he talks about his pre Christian experience. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, far more me. I far more than anybody. How do you know that? Well, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, we we usually look at that as a negative description, and it is in Jesus' time. But in terms of talking to a Jew in that day, to say I was a Pharisee meant you were the, the most, the one who applied your efforts most to sanctification. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. If there was ever a person who stood up for Judaism and the law, it was me. I persecuted Christians. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, which is in the law, blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things he had accumulated by being spotty clean with the, the law, Those things I've counted as loss for the sake 
of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. By the way, the all things here is probably his reputation as one who is respected as a Jew. Count them but garbage, rubbish, so that I may, be, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from where? The law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's Paul's description of what he was like. When he was, this is Paul's definition, not mine. So when Paul looks at his pre-conversion experience, he was pretty happy about that. Pretty braggadocious or docious about that. He, he pounded his chest. You kidding me? If anybody was obedient, that was me. If anybody kept all the commandments, that was me. If anybody was, was proud of the way that they did their Judaism, that was me. Does that sound like the same guy who says, oh, the good I want to do, I don't want to do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. You see a difference in heart? So I remain convinced that the best interpretation in looking at this passage is the most obvious one. Paul was talking about his struggle which is exactly what chapter 8, 1 through 11 tells us how to apply. How do you live? Now, now here, here's, here's the, the glue that we're gonna find in, the, in this connection. Remember, there should be no chapter division between really 6 and 7 and 7 and 8. Paul's saying, I struggle, I hate it, I wanna do better, I'm not doing as well as I want to. But chapter 8, verse 1 there is now therefore no condemnation for who? For believers, for those who are in Christ. Here's what he's telling himself. And this is what your own experience should tell you as a believer. Our experience doesn't interpret scripture, but scripture sure describes our experience. And it's this. Do you ever come to the place where you think, I'm not making the cut. You ever have a moment when you don't feel saved? You ever have a moment when you look at your life and say, I, when I look at other people, I am way behind. No way I can make it. You ever have time when you, you miss an opportunity to have done something right? Witnessing opportunity, saying no to the flesh, saying no to, to a temptation, and you pass it by and you think, I wish I had done it differently. Do you ever sin and grieve over that sin and say the very thing I didn't want to do I did it that sounds a whole lot like Paul's experience why is this so important why are we taking such time to lay a foundation on this because look at chapter 8 There is therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that not the greatest statement you've ever heard in your life? I'm serious. Is there any better news than Romans 8.1? For the, now we get the law again. We, we have the law, Mosaic law. For the law of the spirit of life 
in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That sounds exactly like he's described the Mosaic law in chapter 6 and 7. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, if you just try to do it in the flesh, you might do good things and not do bad things, but you don't please God. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And then we are right into Paul's answer to his own struggle in the last paragraph of chapter 7. Do you see that? Now, the reason we're laying this all out today is I want to get that behind us so that we can borrow from Dr. Owen. In the coming weeks, we're going to drill down into this passage with a lot of help from John Owen, who wrote thousands of pages on this issue, on what it means to fight sin successfully, what it means to struggle for good, what it means to learn to hate the wrong things, and what it means to learn to love the right things. Now, let me, let me give a footnote. We don't, I don't, I hope you don't interpret Romans 7 because, well, that sounds like me, so that must be what it is. We do the opposite. Well, that's Paul's experience. I can identify with that. It comes out of the Bible into our life. We don't project our experience here. Look, some, let me be honest. Some days are better than others. There's some days I, I just feel this incredible power to say no to, to sin. And there are other days, and even as your friend, your shepherd, your pastor, there are days when I see the things I think and do and feel so defeated, I ask myself, how in the world can you even be saved? If you don't hate sin, you won't ask that question. If you don't love righteousness, you won't want to obey. And if you don't understand that struggle, then this statement won't mean anything to you. Therefore, Based on the struggle, there is now, present tense, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, with that laid as a foundation, how, how do you struggle? Do you know you're in a battle? How, how do you do? How, how are you doing today? How did you do this morning? How did you do on the way in? Not that anyone would ever have disagreements or arguments on the way to church. No one would ever do that. Do you know how? Do you know how to fight sin? Do you know how to be aggressive about your sanctification? That's why he lays chapter six out, says here's the, here's the reality, here's the imperative not to do it. Here's the explanation of how we experience it in chapter seven and chapter eight will tell us, okay, here's a roadmap for righteousness. Here's how to follow the spirit of God. Now, here's the good news. You don't have to wait a few weeks or, or so until we get there. You can actually read Romans 7 today, or 8, rather, today if you want to. We're not locking it out of your Bible. Well, we're not, we're not in Romans chapter 8 for a few weeks, so I'll just wait and see what's going on. You can even read Romans 9 if you want to. That's gonna be a fun chapter. So what's the takeaway from today? The takeaway from today is this. If we take the fact that Paul was speaking as a believer, what does it mean? It will guide our application and it will guide our interpretation. If we take 
the view that Paul was an unbeliever when he's speaking his eye. That will guide in, in our, our interpretation, but it will also guide our application. Having believed, having, I think, um, uh, become convinced that he's talking about himself as a believer, that still doesn't solve all the problems. There are still some knots to un, unwind here in this passage, and it is, it is pure joy. Um, in fact, uh, um, just go ahead and put up the outline for a second. Let me show you where we're going to go, um, if we can. We're going to look at the three theological insights to understand about the war within, the war within us. We're going to look at the source of sin, the struggle of sin, and the contradiction of sin. Now, that's what we're going to do today, but we got only through the introduction. So, but we had to lay, who's doing that before we actually get there? So, um, read Romans 7, read Romans 8, and if you have no ability to fight your sin, come to the prayer room in a few minutes. Come and talk to us about your soul, about your life. Do you find that you, you don't care? Do you find yourself convicted? Do you find yourself with a gaping hole in your heart? The things just don't make sense? Are you burdened by the guilt of your sin? Well, you've come to a good place on the right day to talk to people about who you can, how you can be relieved of that. Not through penance, not through effort, through seeing that the Lord Jesus Christ will take that from you if you put your faith in him. And not only will he take your guilt and sin and remove that from you, not, not, not so you don't ever sin anymore. He'll remove that from you so you're not accountable for it anymore having paid that penalty on the cross, and he'll give you his righteousness. You will not bear your sin before heaven. He will take it away because of what he did on the cross. He died for the sins of those who believe. I just want to beg you to believe today. Let's pray. These are tough verses. Holy Spirit. But they're not tough because you were not clear. We complicate them because we don't study them deeply enough. Please teach us in the coming weeks about the war within trace the source to that original domino, not only in Adam, but in our own thinking and hearts, to understand how to struggle in a way that we access the power given by your throne and your spirit, that we love the fact that we hate our sin, and we hate the fact of when we love our sin. Sanctify us. Make us aggressive about it. Give us what we need to please you in our sanctification, knowing that we have already found pleasure with the Father because of the sweet sacrifice and righteousness of the Son. 
while your heads are still bowed, if you have questions or you want to talk about this in any way, if we can pray for you, please come to my right. Prayer room will be open. Uh, the drinks will be there. We'd love to talk to you and share with you anything we can. If you want to talk about church membership, just don't leave the building if the Lord is working on your heart. Dismiss us now, Father, with discussions about you and your word. Because of Christ, amen.